This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Saturday, October 24th, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. As infections and hospitalizations increase dramatically in the United States and elsewhere, what does it really mean to follow the science with respect to COVID-19? What about the costs and trade-offs we accept along with lockdowns and other restrictions on behavior like education and employment? Cato's Jeff Singer describes some of the policy implications of COVID-19, science notwithstanding. There is this ongoing fight about uh, herd immunity, about lockdowns, about waiting for a vaccine. Um, Help us make sense of uh, the recent developments in terms of what the World Health Organization has said and uh, the responses to it. Okay. Well, first, I'd like to start by saying we hear a lot of people, particularly politicians, say, I follow the science. And to me, that tells me that they really don't know what science is because science is really an act of discovery. It's in a constant state of change. It involves differing opinions, different interpretations of the data. In my science of medicine, I can go to a medical conference and we can discuss uh, uh, complicated uh, health situation, a complicated case. And you could have a panel of five outstanding, highly regarded, really knowledgeable scientists having five different opinions about what to do with that. And so uh, follow the science to a lot, a lot of po- politicians, I think, in this po- political era really means follow the scientific opinions of the scientists that I happen to want to follow, because you could come up with different opinions uh, you know, on any side of an argument. So uh, we hear a lot of people talking about asking, I've been asked, do you believe in herd immunity? That's like asking me if I believe in gravity. The fact is, since basic science courses in medical school, these epidemiological principles have been inculcated in our education. Herd immunity is a phenomenon. When you're dealing with uh, viral illnesses that infect the population, uh, viruses require jumping from host to host in order to propagate. And when a significant proportion of the community or herd or however you want to say it, has developed immunity to the virus, then there are too many roadblocks for the virus to propagate to any great degree. That doesn't mean the virus goes away. It just means that major outbreaks become very rare because there aren't enough susceptible hosts. And that's the whole idea behind vaccination. Uh, that's, what, that's how we finally eradicated smallpox, which is the only virus that affects humans that we've ever eradicated. We, we vaccinated enough people where there was no place for the virus to go and eventually the virus couldn't re- reproduce. But in most cases, that every other virus has never gone away. So for example, we went about 20 years without a case of measles after everybody was getting uh, MMR vaccinations. And then uh, a lot of the anti-vaxxers who believe that a measles vaccine caused autism started getting, not getting their children vaccinated. And then after 20 years, we start seeing outbreaks of measles again. Same thing is happening with polio. So it's not as if the virus goes away. And now that's important because a lot of the people who are saying we have to reach herd immunity are being derided as callous or or uh, crazy. When the fact is, we will have to reach herd immunity. Now, we try to, the nicest way to reach it, of course, is if we develop a vaccine and vaccinate enough people that we reach herd immunity. But of course, we don't know when that vaccine will work, uh, when it'll be available, if it'll be effective. We don't know that. We can't simply rely on that. But we have to keep that in mind. So every time a country locks down its population entirely, what it's doing is it's prevent the virus is not moving on to another location. As soon as it, it relaxes the lockdown, 
the people who haven't yet gotten the virus get exposed to it again. So cases start to go up. That's just inevitable. We've learned a lot since this virus first appeared on the scene about seven months ago or so. Actually, now more like close to 10 months ago. Um, and at, I thought it was reasonable at first uh, when we didn't know anything about this to you know, err on the side of caution. Well, now what we know, according to the CDC, is that uh, if you're under 18, uh, the, the actual fatality rate from, from co- coronavirus, COVID-19, is 0.003%, which is three one hundred in 100,000. The fatality rate from age 20 to 50 is 0.2%, which is roughly the same as from influenza. It starts going up over age 50, and the median uh, fatality uh, age of fatality is seven, age 75. And the overwhelming uh, majority of people who die are, are over age 55 and have usually have comorbidities. So what, what that tells us is that now we know who we need to focus our protection on. And the other thing that needs to be taken into account when we only follow quote unquote, the science, the epidemiologists and infectious disease experts are not economists and they're not pretending to be. They tell you what you need to know about the virus and how to contain it. They're not as knowledgeable or even aware of the trade-offs that are involved with doing that. There is a meme that floats around uh, on the internet. I think I sent it to you uh, this week. Uh, There's a woman helping a man who's uh, ailing Uh, And she says, any doctor here? This is a standard meme template. The guy says, I'm a doctor. What's going on? And she says, we urgently need ethical decision-making parameters during the global health crisis. And the guy responds, I'm a medical doctor. Well, that's kind of true. Because, for example, we're reading in the press just today as we're recording this, that uh, there's been an alarming drop in women getting screening mammograms and 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 males and females getting cancer screening procedures. Yesterday, uh, a report in the Wall Street Journal talked about how uh, advanced cases of cancer are appearing that hadn't, at numbers that never had happened before, because people, in, in order to avoid catching the virus, they're not doing the things they need to, to screen for deadly cancers. Uh, I'm a surgeon, and we're still seeing people be reluctant to get non-emergency operations because they're afraid they'll catch the virus. In the meantime, we're being called to the emergency room to see advanced surgical emergencies that we usually, it's rare to see them. For example, a person whose appendix ruptured a week ago and is coming into the emergency room, septic uh, from peritonitis, that you rarely see in a, in, in a, you know uh, an affluent society like the United States. Normally, they get you catch it early enough and they're in and out of hospital in 24 hours. Now they're coming in and have to go to the ICU. So people aren't being concerned about the uh, concerned about those trade-offs. We're also Dr. Nabarro, who's the uh, envoy for the World Health Organization, just the other day said that lockdowns only hurt poor people and don't seem to be effective. We need to consider trade-offs. And he mentioned that since the pandemic has occurred, world poverty has increased, has doubled, as, as has world nutrition. And uh, today's New York Times reports that between six and eight million more Americans are now under the poverty level since May. And that's all because of the economic consequences of lockdowns. And, and, and then, of course, economic consequences have, uh, are also social determinants of health. And then we have children who are, for example, not getting educated. And very young children, they're a crucial 
times in, in their life, landmarks that they have to pass in terms of social development, cognitive development. They're m- missing out of this on this. And this could have actually long-term public health consequences. And then there are mental health consequences. We're seeing documented increased overdoses uh, from, uh, you know, non-medical use of different substances, increased cases of depression, alcohol sales are through the roof and people are drinking much more heavily because they're depressed. All of these things need to be factored in. So, and meanwhile, what are we learning now as we speak? Cases are starting to soar in Europe, but wait a minute, they locked down. How could it be the cases are going up when they lifted the lockdown? Well, like I said, this is not a a philosophy. This is reality. And we learned this in our first year of medical school, that as soon as you release the lockdown, the virus starts infecting the people who are now released from their cocoons. So the solution is not to go back to lockdown, it's to use the knowledge that we've learned to have a more focused, uh, actually, um, some people use the term focused pr- protection. So what in, in this country, about 25% of all deaths occurred in nursing homes. We need much better protection of nursing homes. Uh, among the things you could do is, for example, a lot of nursing home personnel work in multiple nursing homes. And they go, in the course of a day, they may go to two different nursing homes to work. Well, until this thing is over, you, you can't allow that because then you're kind of contaminating from one place to another. We have to have better screening uh, and testing of nursing home personnel. If you're a young person who's essentially got nothing to worry about, if you get COVID, you might have a sniffles for a day or two. You may be one of the 40% who don't get any symptoms. But you know you've been to a party with a lot of people. Don't visit grandma. Stay away for a couple of weeks because you don't know if you may be infecting grandma. And grandma is not going to do as well as you. Just that kind of stuff. It's it's reasonable to wear masks, for example, in enclosed places where, they're, where you can't socially distance. Even though, according to the CDC, 80% of people who have gotten COVID, we're wearing masks all the time. So it's important for people to realize masks are not 100% protective, but they do, you know, it's, it's just common sense that, that they reduce the the aerosol coming out of your mouth when you're talking to people. So you, they should be reducing your exposure. Um, there actually is the first ever randomized controlled trial on masks underway right now in Denmark. All of the other studies we have are more uh, dealing with um, correlation and, and statistical analysis. But those are the kind of things, practice social distancing. But actually, we should allow as many people who we know are statistically speaking at very low risk to get back to, to life uh, as soon as possible. Now, a lot of those people are going to probably get infected. So when we see cases are going up. These are cases of people who may be in their 20s, who they tested positive because they got the sniffles, so they got concerned, so they went and got a, a, a test, and they were positive, and then 48 hours later, they were back to normal again. We're seeing this also you know, in the news. How many of these uh, politicians who've gotten infected were sick enough to go to the hospital? They, most of them didn't even get symptoms. So this is going to happen. It's just reality. There's no way to escape it. And by trying to escape it by locking down, you're just delaying the inevitable. But the good news is those healthy people, once they get immunity, they're contributing to whatever critical mass we're going to need in society until we reach herd immunity. And nobody knows what percentage that is, by the way. You know, the conventional wisdom is you need 60 to 70 percent of the population. But we're learning that there are a whole lot of people, and this, there have been several studies on this, that suggest uh, there's a thing called T-cell immunity. There are two types of lymphocytes, your T-cells and the B-cells. The B-cells make antibodies against the invading antigen. The T-cells 
they're different types. Some go right after it and some uh, stimulate the B cells because they get memory to wake up and repro start reproducing those antibodies. And they also release factors that stimulate your whole immune system to go after this invading antigen because they remember it. They call memory T cells. And there's a lot of evidence that suggests that uh, now that people who've uh, been exposed to other coronaviruses, that their T cells have memory to those coronaviruses. Now, that's not the exact same coronavirus, but there's enough similarity chemically to the capsule of that those coronaviruses to this current SARS-CoV-2 that they amount somewhat of an immune response. And that may explain why some people don't get much of, in a way of symptoms or no symptoms at all. Well, if we factor in the people who uh, have gotten infected and have B-cell immunity, and then, of course, T-cell immunity comes with that down the road, and then the people already in our society who never got exposed to SARS-CoV-2 but have maybe this partial immunity from other coronavirus exposures, and you add them together, we may not need uh, to reach 60 to 70 percent. Furthermore, based on random sampling of people with the antibodies to SARS to COVID-19, the CDC estimates that the actual number of people who've been infected is possibly 10 times the number of, of cases we have, because the cases we have are people who come forward requesting a test. So instead of 7.5 million, we may have already 75 million people who've been infected with this. What about the uh, rapid increase uh, in cases in Europe? Well, Europe locked down for the most part, not all of Europe. We're not seeing a rapid increase in cases in Sweden, which did more of a focused kind of uh, approach. In fact, things are, are fairly getting back to normal there. But uh, again, this is predictable as, as restrictions were relaxed, then uh, all of the population that had not yet been exposed to the virus are now getting out and getting exposed. But, and, and again, it all, it, to me, the case numbers is less important to focus on than the hospitalization numbers and the fatality numbers. Because if a whole bunch of young, healthy people get the virus and everybody's better in a day or two, then that's fine. But if we're starting to flood our hospitals with sick people, then we're stressing the healthcare system again. Remember way back when this started, the whole goal was to prevent the hospitals from getting overloaded, to so-called flatten the curve. Now, here in Arizona, where I'm speaking to you from, cases are starting to go up again here too, but it hasn't impacted the hospitals so far. Only 10% of all patients in the, in the hospitals in, in the state of Arizona are COVID patients, and the hospitals are at regular capacity levels. So uh, uh, that's the thing I think we should focus on it. As long as we are able to handle the capacity and we're protecting the vulnerable people, then the number of cases going up, to me, is less important to, uh, as, a, as an issue. It's the number of people who are getting seriously ill and the, and the number of people are dying and our ability to deal with seriously ill people. That matters to me. Jeff Singer is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 